Good morning. What a uh, wonderful morning to be here together, gathered to worship the Lord as a church family. Uh, what Dennis said about the weather is true. This is just the Lord is, uh, is, is giving us much brightness uh, this morning. That, that, that wonder that we feel, the thankfulness that we feel, is true every Sunday of every week of the year, isn't it? Uh, I, in particular, am, am thankful and excited that the Lord has allowed Tillmans and the Brocks to be back with us this morning to worship after so long. We thank God for protecting you and watching over you, and we are, uh, we're just overjoyed. Uh, some of you may have spent parts of the last week, uh, the Passion Week, very deliberately reflecting at points on what was happening in Jesus' life the week leading up to his crucifixion. Uh, so we've been thinking, perhaps, then, about some of those unfolding events uh, that led up to Resurrection Sunday. We've been thinking about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? The cleansing of the temple, the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus' teachings, the Last Supper, the arrest, the trial, the false testimony, the shouts for crucifixion from the same mouths that shouted, Hosanna, just the week before. Uh, now, we come to Sunday morning, and all of uh, that, that, uh, that meditation that we may have engaged in last week, we know all of it really is simply preparatory for what we find this morning. All of that aims at Resurrection Sunday. Now that Sunday morning has arrived, as we're thinking about the events of Jesus' life and ministry, now that this Sunday morning has arrived, he is risen. And his resurrection is, as we will see this morning, a direct statement concerning his death. So this morning, we will use the occasion uh, that we have before us uh, of really this most important of Christian holidays to reflect on the two things together. They must be seen together. The one gives the context for the other, to reflect on Jesus' death and his resurrection. Uh, and as we do that, we're going to do that by thinking about three truths concerning these things. Each one of them will bring us to a different place in Scripture. So I'll have you turning to a few different places this morning. Um, I think it is helpful before we begin that uh, to uh, mention a couple of truths that need to go together in our minds as we think about this entire act of remembering on an annual basis and celebrating the resurrection. You probably know it's not an issue that is free of controversy in the church. There's a lot of questions about um, to what extent do we do this? Should we even call it Easter? You know, these sorts of questions are prevalent in, in, in Christian circles, and they're important questions. I think there are two things for us to remember that go together. So I'll just describe these, and then we'll move past them and look at our three passages. Uh, the first one is for us to acknowledge it is true and it is significant to understand that every Sunday morning church gathering is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, we do that every week that we gather together. It's the reason that the Lord's Day is honored and kept on the first day of the week, because this is the day that Christ rose from the grave, and that changed everything. It changed everything. He is now the first fruits of the new life, and we uh, 
act that out, if you will, every week as we gather together on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. So that's important for us to have in mind. The second thing to keep along with that in our minds is that we have to understand that the church has been annually celebrating Christ's resurrection, as far as we can tell, since essentially the beginning of the church. It was already a very well-established annual event in the life of God's people, even by the time of the first church council in 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea has a number of pages, not about whether to do this, but about when in the year it ought to be celebrated. They sought to normalize the scheduling of it. But if that's where they're at, then by that point, the church has already been remembering the resurrection in a unique way on a particular point in the year. Now, all of that to say, and lots more could be said, of course, uh, that what we do this morning as we focus intentionally on Christ's resurrection in a unique way, uh, it constitutes an alignment with the church's traditions since essentially the beginning. Uh, this morning, then, we are celebrating the resurrection of our Lord on this Easter Sunday by taking a very deliberate look at three truths surrounding the crucifixion of our Lord and his resurrection. The first place I'd like you to turn with me is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Now, it's true in what we'll do here, uh, this will be the case with the other two passages we go to as well. We're not going to these places uh, in order to try to understand the argument that is being made in this particular chapter. Uh, We're not even going to spend a great deal of time looking at the context of where we come. We're going to these three places to hear three designations that are made. Uh, Something is going to be described in a certain way by the biblical author, and I want us to take note of how he's describing that. So 1 Corinthians 5, 7, uh, let me just read this verse. What I want you to hear is, how does Paul here describe the Lord Jesus Christ? He gives a command in this verse. He says, cleanse out the leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The first truth I want us to consider this morning as we're doing what we're doing is that Christ in his death was the final paschal lamb. Jesus came to lay down his life and he laid down his life as the Passover lamb for his people that their sins might be covered. You see it in his description here. It's how Paul speaks of Christ in a very shorthand way. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Leon Morris describes this in a helpful way. He says, in making a comparison, Christ is for the believers what the Passover was for the Jews. There really is something incredible here uh, when we think about the, uh, God's perfect design in redemptive history and in the life and work of Christ. There's something amazing about the timing of the events of Jesus' death. And to appreciate that, I'll say something that I, you will not hear me say very often. We, we need to do some math. D- enjoy it, because you won't hear, I hope, me say that for quite some time after this. We need to do a little bit of math. Let me read to you. You don't have to turn back to Exodus. Exodus 12, verses 3 and 6, gave God's people a particular instruction about calendar and timing 
of celebrating the Passover. We read there in verse 3, God says, Tell all the congregation of Israel, on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Verse 6, And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. This is God's description to them, his command, concerning how they are to prepare for the Passover. And the month that he's talking about is what became for them after the Exodus, the first month of their calendar year. It's the month of Nisan. So what they're told to do in these verses is they're told to choose out their Passover sacrifice on Nisan 10th, take it into their house, care for it until Nisan 14th. They care for it for five days until the time comes for it to then be slaughtered. So that bringing in of their Passover lamb for their family happened on the 10th of the month. To what extent is Jesus the Passover lamb? Well, let's see. Guess what day of their calendar Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? The 10th of the month. Big coincidence? I, I do not think so. We know that it's the 10th of the month of Nisan because John 12:1 tells us that uh, it speaks of the day before the triumphal entry, and it tells us of that day that it was six days before the Passover. So then the next day he rides into Jerusalem, fifth day before the Passover. So Jesus rides into his home, into the, the capital city of Jerusalem. I don't mean his, his birthplace home. He rides into Jerusalem on the day that Passover sacrifices are being brought into homes throughout Jerusalem. Now, I know that they measured their days start and end differently than we do, and it can be very easy to devolve into detailed disputes about the exact count and timing of events and such. I think to do that is to really lose a great deal. Let me just ask you, is it difficult to see what God was putting on display? We could easily belabor the point. I don't think that we need to. On Palm Sunday, they welcome Jesus in as their king, their conquering, coming king, laying down the palm branches and shouting to the king of the son of David. They have no idea. They're bringing in. <coughs> they're bringing into their home the true Passover lamb himself. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5-7 that the true Passover lamb did in God's courtroom what the Old Testament types, shadows, could only do typologically in an earthly way. He actually atoned for the sins of his people by the shedding of his blood. So Jesus in his coming, and even in the particular timing of his particular coming into Jerusalem. What he's doing is he is living out the motions of the Passover lamb. And it would be, we could get this backwards easily. It would be a bit inappropriate to say that he is doing that metaphorically. To be a symbol of the Passover lamb. That would be exactly backwards, wouldn't it? Because it's all of the other Passover lambs who are the metaphors. They've always been the metaphors. 
They were the shadows and types of this. He is the Passover lamb, the true one. And in that way, then, he is the last Passover lamb that needed to be offered as a sacrifice. Now, let's bring this in uh, to thoughts concerning the resurrection. So far, we're thinking about the crucifixion this morning. The second truth for us to see that builds off of that, we're going to find in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Jesus comes, lays down his life as the Passover lamb. And the only question that really matters is, is that a sacrifice that is going to be accepted? What we find secondly here, looking at Acts 17, is that the resurrection signaled the Father's acceptance of that atonement sacrifice. Acts 17, beginning in verse 30, we read this. The times, by the way, again here, we're not stopping to take great note of the context, but this is Paul giving a sermon, uh, preaching evangelistically to unbelievers, and he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. His act of raising the Lord Jesus from the dead gave assurance that Jesus is exactly who he said he was in his earthly ministry, that he had done exactly what he said he was going to do, to lay down his life a ransom for many. We read something similar in Romans 1.4, where it tells us that Christ, it says, was declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. It's very important for us this morning to understand just what the resurrection means for the context of God's work and salvation through his Son. The resurrection provides a display, a statement from the Father that both validates who Jesus claimed to be and validates the finished work that Christ died to accomplish. It's been helpful to me as I've thought about this. I've had sort of a mental image in my mind of the people of God and perhaps even looking back to the first Passover in the Old Testament. The Passover lamb is slaughtered, right? They know the coming judgment that's the reason for them offering this sacrifice. When that Passover lamb is slaughtered and God's huddled people who have trusted that this lamb will take away their sins. They proceed then to, you could say it this way, hold their breath to see what will happen. Will God accept this substitute and pass us over? There's nothing else to do now but wait. The the sacrifice has been made. Now we wait. Will God accept this substitute Sacrifice, Because if he doesn't, if he doesn't accept that substitute, that's it. There is no other sacrifice to be offered. Eternal torment, rightly deserved, is all that remains. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, If Christ was not raised, we are still in our sins. 
There is no other sacrifice. It's game over for sinful men and women. This forces into our mind, even in the context of Easter then, the justice of God, the good justice of God, and the subsequent then certainty of the punishment of sin. If God is good, sin must be punished. It's only when we contemplate those things, those realities, that we have the framework in place to appreciate the held breath of God's people. And you think about the, um, the disciples of the Lord Jesus who in those three days between the death and the resurrection are very confused individuals. But this whole concept begs that question and the desperation that must be in the minds of God's people as Christ lies in the grave. Will his sacrifice be accepted? And then Jesus Christ <clears throat> walks out of that tomb. And our held breath turns into a shout of joy. But it's way more than just a generic moment of happiness. It's the biggest sigh of relief that any human being could ever breathe. That's Easter. The biggest, most joyful sigh of relief and joy that could be breathed. Sinners seeing evidence, demonstrated proof before them. The Father has accepted this atoning sacrifice. It's a shout of relief. It is most certainly as well a shout of worship to the triune God. This is not simply a shout of thanks to Jesus Christ. It's a shout of worship to the triune God whose plan this is. This was the divine plan all along, wasn't it? And that Father who accepts the substitute in my place is the one who sent the substitute in my place in the first place. It was an act of divine love that arranged this substitutionary atonement to happen, which is what happened at the cross. So what that means then, if you think of the first truth we saw about Jesus as the Passover lamb, and now what we see here in the resurrection, we see then that Easter is the completion, the fulfillment, the telos of Passover. Easter is the reason we do not celebrate Passover any longer. In situating Resurrection Sunday into God's plan of redemptive history then, we see and we have seen first Jesus turned out to be the Paschal Lamb that was being pointed to, typified in the death of every single Passover Lamb. That's a lot of lambs. It's a lot of metaphors. It must be that this is a big deal. I read that by some counts, by the time of Jesus' day, something like 250,000 lambs were slaughtered in the observance of Passover on an annual basis. It all pointed to one, the one that must be and the one that was sufficient. We've seen that this morning. We've seen that the offering for sin was accepted and that that acceptance is seen in the Father raising the son and bringing him out of the tomb. Now, third, let's ask a question of this timeline then, this flow of redemptive history. The question is, now what? Now what? 
Well, here's what I want us to see thirdly this morning. The risen Christ stands vindicated then as the representative of his people. In other words, in his vindication, he has accomplished the purpose for which he was sent to this earth in the first place. He stands in that position as the head of a new race. He is the vindicated last Adam. Would you turn with me to the book of Romans now, chapter 5, and find verse 12. This time, we're not going to listen to hear a description of Christ. We're not going to listen to hear a description of the resurrection. We're going to hear something here about Adam. Notice what is said here about Adam. Romans 5, I'll read verses 12 to 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For indeed, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now listen to this. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Do you hear that description at the end of verse 14 about Adam? Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And I had us read verses 12 and 13 along with that, because there we find the way in which the two are similar. We see here the reason that 1 Corinthians 15 calls Jesus the last Adam. It's because the two of them have in common the role of representative heads of a people. Adam stood in a very unique place before God. With Adam, in his actions, he would represent a race of people who are in him. As Adam goes, so goes the race of Adam. He stands before God in that very unique position. I don't stand before God in a position like that. Adam was serving as a representative head of the human race. And verse 14 here tells us that by standing in such a representative role, what he was doing was he was serving as a type of the one who was to come, which is Christ. Douglas Moo in his commentary on the book of Romans, and let me just say again, yes, this is a plug for the coming conference this fall, our ARF conference, which is biannual. Uh, Doug Moo will be our speaker that weekend, and I'm very excited for him to be here. Doug Moo writes this in reference to what is said there in verse 14. It is in this sense that Adam is a type of Christ. Here it is. The universal impact of his one act prefigures the universal impact of Christ's act. Now, when he says universal, he does not mean an act that affects all of the universe. He means an act that universally affects all who belong to him, all who are in him, all that he represents. This means some very good news for you and for me this morning, if you are in Christ. My friend, if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you have been claimed by him as belonging to him, as being in him. If he fails, 
if his sacrifice is unworthy, then his failure is your failure. But if Jesus Christ walks out of that tomb, then his victory is your victory. What we're doing this morning is a deviation from our moving through the book of Galatians, as we've been doing now all year. But it turns out that this matter of so what the resurrection, what now the resurrection, is very relevant to what we have been learning from Paul in the book of Galatians. This is why the writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus is both the author and perfecter of our faith. This is why what we've been seeing for months now is true, that righteousness is credited to those who are of the faith of Abraham. This is why that's the case. It's because God deals with mankind through federal headship, through representation. And you are in Adam, the failed representative, unless and until you come into union with Christ, the vindicated representative. And that does not happen except for those who are of the faith of Abraham, those who live by faith in Jesus' finished work and not their own works. I pray that this is a part of the content of the conversations that happen at lunch this afternoon as we all go from here. That as Jesus emerges from the tomb, we now have all the options set before us as sinful humanity. There's there's nothing more to be done. We can stand before God in Adam, or we can stand before God in Christ. There are two that he has given, and only two. In Adam, there is no hope. There is only judgment. Work as hard as you like. There is only judgment. But in Christ, there's more than hope. There is certainty. And there is certainty because Jesus left the tomb that morning. Let me close us in prayer. And to do that, I'd like to just read a prayer that I came across recently that was very encouraging to me. uh, And I think is fitting in light of what we have seen this morning. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we gather before your throne full of hope and great joy. For your son has risen from the dead, and this good news changes everything. Because of his resurrection, we are neither afraid to die or to live. We're not hapless vagabonds on the earth. We are hope-filled children of God. We're no longer enslaved to our sins. We're now wrapped in the righteousness of your son. Those who have gone to sleep in him are not slumbering in the void. They are rejoicing in your presence. And we say, hallelujah. Your son is the first fruits and guarantee of a whole new order. The new creation dominion of redemption and restoration. 
everything sad will come untrue, and all things broken will be made new. Oh, how we long for that day. Father, because of his resurrection, we confess this morning with great joy that he reigns even now as the King of kings and Lord of lords. All evil dominions, wicked authorities, and malevolent powers now stand defeated, and one day they will be fully eradicated. Lord Jesus, your death is the death of death, and your resurrection is the resurrection of all things. You died for our sins and have been raised for our justification. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, the marvel and gratitude that fills our hearts today. Because we are forgiven. We are beloved and we are yours. Father, in light of this living hope and compelling love, free us to spend the rest of our days living and loving to your glory. For all this, we thank you, and we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.